Hi, this is Jim Montague, Executive Editor of Control Magazine and ControlGlobal.com, and this is the latest in our Control Amplified podcast series. As usual, we're talking with different experts about important topics in the process control and automation field and seeking to go beyond our print and online coverage to explore some of the underlying issues affecting users, system integrators, suppliers, and other people and organizations in these industries. Yet again, I'm interviewing our friends at ARC Advisory Group, who provided some level-headed input for my late-breaking news story on the early impacts of coronavirus disease 2019 on the process automation and control industries for the April 2020 issue of Control. They summarized some of the early responses to the pandemic and detailed how digital transformation may give users some flexibility and remote collaboration, uh, monitoring and control tools they'll need to handle similar crises in the future. Uh, With me today is Larry O'Brien, ARC's Vice President for Research. His area of expertise is process automation on the supplier side and the upstream and midstream oil and gas industry. We're also joined by Craig Resnick, Vice President and a member of the automation consulting team at ARC that covers the PLC, PAC, HMI, uh, OIT, and industrial PC markets, as well as the packaging, plastics, and rubber industries. Uh, well, guys, uh, you know, thanks for your nimble response, uh, despite the unprecedented events we're all going through now, and, uh, and let's get started. Sounds good. Okay. Great to be here. Okay. All right. You know, beyond all the mainstream coverage of COVID-19, you know, how is the pandemic affecting the process automation and controls industries so far? Uh, what, what input are you guys getting? Well, uh, this is Craig. I would say we've been getting, you know, kind of a, it's probably been a little bit unbalanced in the respect of kind of what industries are seeing kind of like an, a, an immediate surge versus what industries seem to be uh, slowing down. Uh, on some of the industries that are really kind of feeling the surge aspect, you know, is, you know, you, you think of it as, as you're going through a shift in models for people who are now having a lot of uh, products that are being delivered, let's say, directly to their home and, and as a result having, um, companies like Amazon needing to hire a hundred thousand extra people, companies like, uh, CVS adding an extra 50,000 people. Uh, so what we're seeing is, is that in the area of things such as like pulp and paper, uh, the amount of the type of product that they are needing to produce, uh, we, we all know what it's like to go to the supermarket and uh, look at uh, items such as bath tissue. And uh, so how do you handle that initial surge, knowing that surge will uh, last for a period of time and then people will have a, an awful lot of inventory, so they'll have to about, you know, kind of change uh, change what they're producing. Uh, but it's also going to change the type of packaging and container board and the other products that they need to manufacture right now to to support the companies that are doing a lot of that in-home uh, delivery. It's also putting a lot of change to the food and beverage manufacturers and the pharmaceutical manufacturers because rather than sending their goods and services to major retailers' warehouses that are now broken down into, uh, you know, smaller lots and now shipped directly to put on the store shelves. Uh, some of that inventory all is also being shipped directly to the consumer and kind of bypassing the traditional channels. So it's putting more pressure on them to change the way that their products are being packaged, uh, for example. You know, we're seeing uh, in industries like automotive where they're, 
you know, initially when it, uh, the impact was much strongest on China first and saw that aspect of the supply chain get shut down, and then as the virus really moved into Europe, and seeing how the changes that they need to make there, and then a lot of those uh, factories being shut down, and then obviously as that you know moved into North America, but it really put a lot of weight on the automotive industry because they didn't feel their supply chain was quite as nimble and 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 flexible enough uh, and adaptable, you know, based on based on what was going on. Uh, nobody can certainly uh, dispute what's happening in the oil and gas industry, where you have a, you know, tankers all throughout the ocean filled with unsold oil, and and between the war, but the, uh, the the pricing wars and the production wars between countries like Saudi Arabia and Russia, and in, in spite of the United States trying to see if they could intervene in that war, but you know, looking at uh, West, West Texas Intermediate and Brent down in the, you know, the the, the below twenty dollars or slightly above twenty dollars. Uh, so we recognize well, what that kind of pressure that's putting on the oil and gas industry. So it's really been um, it's been you know extremely volatile, uh, but at the same time um, we have found some common denominators, which is that what these companies across all industries need to do is find ways to make their supply chain uh, more flexible and have greater visibility. At the same time, in bringing like real-time principles into supply chain planning and execution, and the other thing is, is that uh, no different than as we spend a lot of our days uh, doing uh, virtual meetings and webcasts and working from home, they'd like to bring a lot of those remote principles, um, bring it back to the factory floor, and be able to leverage uh, IoT technology and and be able to be able to get that information from the factory floor. And deliver it to uh, to people's homes or wherever they may be to be able to do a better job of running their facilities if the workforce cannot have access uh, to the facility and people need to be making some of those production decisions uh, you know from remote locations so uh, those two phenomenons uh, are really uh, you know really getting center of attention right now across all the industrial automation industries. One of our other analysts just wrote a blog post uh, about uh, coronavirus in the control room, for example. So this highlights the need to do uh, remote work. Um, so I, I've heard anecdotally, I've heard some stories about uh, operators uh, at power distribution centers essentially being in lockdown in the control room with a cot, you know, running the plant to make sure they don't get sick. Uh, a lot of these, a lot of these facilities are, are running pretty lean. You know, if a few people get sick, it can really mess up your schedule pretty bad, and you don't have enough qualified people to cover operations. So we see a big drive towards uh, more remote operations and remote monitoring, and, and people need to be able to do that securely too. Uh, so, in some ways, it's, it's speeding up people's digitization programs because they need to do a lot of this stuff right now. The the, the shifts are just kind of amazing in that you know you'd, you'd have increases in things like you know consumer goods and and food and beverage and and things like that but then there's the shift from you know utilities a lot of industries would be depressed but then you know things like water wastewater and power distribution uh, would be shifting from you know commercial buildings you know to the there'd be much more emphasis now on the residences because everybody's at home right to a degree that's that's correct um What's very interesting, though, is one of the, the challenges that these that these utilities, like everybody else, are having, is whether or not they're kind of shifting the resources from, say, commercial to residential. 
but you still need to be able to make those changes. And this is where, again, as, uh, as I talked about earlier and as Larry talked about earlier, this whole remote access issue, you know, becomes front and center. And it's interesting because some of the industrial automation players have been, have announced that they are making free licenses for remote access to their products and solutions free. So uh, over the next quarter, they're going to be go, you know, going to their customers that have their installed base and uh, announcing uh, that they're going to say, if you'd like to have you know, remote HMI, for example, we're going to enable you to have free access. There was a recent case study uh, of a water utility in Haverhill, Massachusetts, uh, that has now been, uh, you know, has gone through exactly, Jim, what you just mentioned. And uh, again, their automation suppliers are providing uh, free access uh, to their install to the install base of their equipment for that exact purpose, and uh, as as you know, shifting some of the demand from commercial to residential, and being able to monitor it from a remote location because uh, that city has a stay-at-home order. Right, it's just very tough to you know wrap your head around some of those changes, and probably even tougher for the people who are actually you know attempting to do it. You know, is anyone, any of the players in the process industries, you know, mobilizing to help, you know, local governments and healthcare providers handle the pandemic? And, you know, if so, how are they doing it? Well, I think what they're doing is I think that just that first reaction of being able to provide the remote access and, and give those licenses away uh, without even asking for purchase orders because they recognize at this time where a lot of budgets are frozen that uh, they, you know, people may have a difficult time accessing that. But we're seeing that from the automation suppliers uh, across the board, kind of going to the aid of their customers. But the, but at least something in the, in the area of remote access is something that can be done, you know, pretty instantaneously in a great deal of the install basis. Right. Well, well, you guys mentioned like, you know, people are using much more of the Zoom tools and the Microsoft Teams and the, and the teleconferencing if they, you know, have the, uh, the bandwidth. Is there any other, you know, good strategies or practices that are, you know, helping the end users deal with COVID-19 that might be useful to others? Uh, what would they, what would, might they include? Well, one of the things that we're seeing is people are really using this time that they're not traveling, that they're not going into the plants, that they're, uh, you know, working from their home offices to really get into, I would say, really planning mode. And, and yep, now... Yeah, I was going to say that too. Yeah. And, and one of the things, and it's actually at ARC, you know, Larry and I and all our colleagues, uh, the reason that we've been so busy over the last three or four weeks is that the end user community across all industries are saying, you know, we've been talking about digital transformation for a long time. We've, uh, we've done some, you know, we, we began our, our journey. Uh, but now we recognize that digital transformation is now mandatory. You know, instead of worrying about, uh, the initial, you know, how, what's going to be the ROI, for example, of some of this, uh, digital transformation change. Now we recognize that long term, when we come out of this, we had better be prepared to be able to have the most, you know, flexible, nimble, you know, real-time visible supply chain that's possible. And we better make sure that, that there's no geographic limitation to our ability to monitor and, you know, analyze and control our business. 
And when it comes to technologies, for example, such as, you know, using tools like augmented reality and virtual reality to kind of help uh, supplement what people are seeing on the factory floor because they may be walking the factory floor from, from a remote location, uh, for example, and uh, be able to need, really get to know what's happening there so they can make the best and, and most uh, optimized decisions as, as, as possible. So you're seeing that right now is people are going to be, even if their budgets may be, you know, frozen for the moment, um, but this is going to be the second quarter, calendar quarter, 2020, is going to be the, the planning quarter. And the people are yeah, going to say Yeah, and not everybody's that, budgets are frozen right now either. I mean, we still have clients that are moving ahead with, uh, you know, planning projects to migrate, you know, obsolete control systems and stuff like that. A lot of this stuff is still continuing. It's actually a good time to do this kind of project planning because, you know, you're stuck behind a desk. So, you know, what else you can do, right? Um, you're not going to be able to do a lot of on-site stuff. So this this type of longer-term planning, uh, it's, it's a pretty good time to be doing this kind of stuff if you can do it. Right. Larry, you mentioned that some of the conditions when we talked earlier were similar to, you know, the 2008, uh, you know, recession and that. Yeah, that's what we told people back in 2008, too, is that this, right. this recession is going to end, and when it ends, you got to be ready to start up again. And I think, you know, this will be shorter term. I mean, they're saying we're yeah. going to have the peak oh, of this hopefully. virus within about three weeks, and then you figure there's a there's a kind of a long tail on the end of that. But people are going to be out driving around again. Um, transportation will resume. You know, all this stuff is going to come back on. So we got to be ready well, for it. Right. Well, well, downstream, as you know, when the gas prices are down and they're, you know, Chicago area is like $2 or less. And, uh, you know, so are the downstream industries and people that use energy going to, you know, eventually that maybe they'll benefit. The the essential industries are still open, but, you know, the lower oil and gas prices could benefit a lot of those uh, industries as well, right? Oh, absolutely. As yeah. a matter of fact, one of the, yeah, one of the things that we've heard, certainly, you know, companies, for example, like in the petrochemical industry, just the the inexpensive feedstock, for example, that they'd be having, uh, you know, that you know, how can they benefit from obviously the the currently low oil prices? The other thing we've heard is if you are going to be borrowing money uh, to finance some of these uh, expansions. You know, if you're getting as, you know, pretty close to zero interest rates, um, this is really the time if a company is going to be, uh, you know, borrowing money. And obviously, if they have a pretty solid line of credit, as, as uh, you know, many of our well-established uh, manufacturing clients do, they would be in a position that they can really kind of leverage that uh, low-cost capital to make some of these investments and, and expansion. But the thing that's that, that's really good with a lot of these digital transformation projects is, and this is a, a question we get from a lot of our supply uh, clients on the user side, is they'll say, do we really have to go through a full-blown rip and replace of our existing installed base of automation equipment to, to go ahead with these digital transformation product, you know, projects? And the thing is, is that in many cases, these are additives. You know, for example, it's like if you're adding, you know, edge devices, edge control, uh, within the plant to certainly allow you to, to run analytics locally and be able to make, uh, you know, better control decisions in, in real time without having to send that information outside the plant or up, up, up into the cloud. Uh, but using that, using the, the decisions and now storing that information, uh, in the, in the cloud long term. 
um, these are things that are additives to your existing install base. It's not going to require, you know, massive investments of tearing everything out and, uh, you know, putting everything in state-of-the-art. So the idea of digital transformation and what these companies are discovering is it's not going to be quite as daunting a task and require some of the, the massive investments that I think that sometimes there's a perception that it takes to get going. Well, I mean, you know, I know a lot of folks are, uh, you know, somewhat deer in the headlights because the, the news is so unprecedented. Um, and, and, you know, they, the saying is people always, you know, in a crisis situation, they just go with what they know. And so, you know, I'm sure a lot of people will be a lot more, if it's not broke, don't fix it, you know, don't make any, you know, unusual moves. Um, but then, like you said, this is an opportunity time when, you know, borrowing is inexpensive. There's downtime to contemplate some of these. So how, I guess my question is, how do you get out of that deer in the headlights, that paralysis? And then what's the to-do list for digital, you know, the digital transformation project? Well, I would, I, I would say that you know, to get rid of the, to get rid of the deer or the headlights is to recognize that status quo will result in that the next time this happens, the next time there is a, a, a pandemic or some, time, or some massive global crisis, the companies that do nothing today will be the companies that will not exist for the next cycle. You know, you can, you can try to short term just say, I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to, I'm going to freeze all spending. I'm going to leave everything alone and just wait for everything to come back. But some of the things that we've heard even from talking to some of our uh, end user clients is that in the future, when they are trying to reestablish their supply chain, for example, they're not going to work with companies and partner with companies that don't have a similar level of digital transformation. You know, they want to be able to be able to communicate with these companies in real time, make absolute, you know, quick decisions based on consumer demand, uh, you know, supply chain availability, um, energy costs, even a thing which, uh, we, you know, we, we hadn't uh, had thought about several years ago, but even things like trade and tariff prices, for example. They need to have that information, you know, you know, essentially at their beck and call, so they're in a position that they can make fast changes based on the real, you know, the real-time conditions. And in many cases, they're not going to work with companies that don't have that ability themselves. So, for example, what that says is, is that end users are going to put the weight on their supply chain, they're going to put the weight on their automation suppliers to make sure that the, everybody's at a minimum level of digital transformation and have truly digitalized their systems, you know, kind of moving from digitized to digitalized and get to the point where all these systems are working in unison to make sure that the next time there's an, that we get hit blindsided by a crisis, that these companies have the ability to quickly redeploy manufacturing, quickly redeploy their, uh, where their workers are able to make decisions, redeploy, uh, the equipment the, where they were from, from on-site to, to remote or off-site. This is the stuff, this is gonna, so any indecision you have today, dear of the headlights, you may, you may win the battle, but you're gonna lose the war long term for the companies that uh, are not planning now and certainly investing when things come back to, uh, to, to be prepared for the next time. Yeah, yeah, and like I said, this isn't a bad time to start thinking about project planning, and if you've been considering some kind of a, you know, 
IoT implementation. Uh, like Craig said, it, most of these solutions fit quite well over a variety of legacy equipment. Um, doesn't really matter what you have installed. They don't take that long to implement, you know, versus, say, implementing a distributed control system, which is a highly engineered project that can last, you know, for years, you know, in a big installation. These IoT projects are, are much shorter times. Um, you can realize a return on investment a lot faster. Um, so it's not a time to put the brakes on um, as far as implementing these types of solutions. And in fact, like we said before, a lot of people are, are ramping up and accelerating their programs just so they can adapt to what's happening right now. Right. But then, Larry, what, what would you say are just a couple of things that should be on my to-do list or my laundry list? You know, just get a couple of Internet-enabled edge devices, you know, do a little project, plug them in. Have, well, you know, of course, you need to know what in. you want to do, right? Yeah. Um, okay. So you should have some kind of an objective in mind. And then, you you know, you purchase the technology based on what your business objectives are, right? Because, I mean, yeah. you're buying the technology to achieve some kind of a business result. You know, whether it's, you know, you want to be more agile or respond more quickly or, you know, maybe you're a city. You know, one of the areas I look at now is smart cities. Um, mm -hmm. It's been kind of tough, you know, articulating this value proposition of, of tying together all these different functional areas, which is what an IoT platform does, right? It's what a smart city platform does. It ties together information from water and utilities and, you know, uh, emergency health and safety stuff and everything else. So you get a single, you know, that single pane of glass view into what everything that's going on all at once, you know, so you can make some informed decisions about what, what to do next. Um, now I think that value proposition may be a little easier to articulate, you know, because you can actually see there's, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on right now and we able we need to be able to react pretty quickly and what's happening over here might have a big impact in what's happening in another area. So you need to understand those interrelationships a lot better. Yeah. But I guess the the advice to a typical end user, maybe somebody running a, a mid sized process application, you know, like water wastewater or a you know, medium or small refinery of some kind or, or you know, processing uh you know, downstream chemicals or food and beverage. A, a lot of the, some of the stories we've done in the past um, were, were about kind of the end run where you used to have to take this, the signals in, you know, go through the IO and the PLCs and the DCS. And, and so then in one of the unifying threads seemed to be that people could just get an internet enabled sensor or module or, or something and, and then just, you know, plug it into, you know, an internet network and poof, there would be some, you know, signals and parameters showing up on their laptop or their smartphone. And, and the, you know, you'd still, you know, any major control changes would be done by the traditional infrastructure, but there was just kind of like, just do a little end run around the usual, you know, structure and, and get some of this data via the internet on, on whatever laptop or smartphone. And then you could begin to optimize, you know, mostly used for monitoring. And then you could begin to optimize in a small way. And is that, you know, is that something people can can do right now? I think we're seeing a bigger push towards uh, even more stuff, um, not just remote monitoring of a few sensors, but actual remote operations mm -hmm. and uh, eventually remote control. Um, yeah. A lot of it comes down to operational requirements, again, and security is one of those. Uh, so it's great to, you know, plug a smart sensor in with an Internet connection and monitor it from your laptop or something. But, right. 
you know, doing that at home with Raspberry Pi is a lot different from doing it in an industrial setting, especially when you're a critical infrastructure industry like water, wastewater, or power transmission and distribution. Uh, you really have to keep cybersecurity in mind and secure secure remote access. Well, I must scold you guys because you're answering questions before I ask them, but I guess we've just done too many podcasts together. But but that's true, you know. If if people are more remote and are at home more, um, you know, how how do you make your digital transformation project, if you're contemplating one, how do you make it secure? Is is there you know a, a to do list for that, Larry? Yeah, and there are ways to do that, um, and you, that those things need to be in your supplier selection criteria, you know. So let's say I'm a water industry end user and I want to implement a new SCADA system and my old one is 30 years old and, you know, I really want some remote access to go along with this. Uh, well, number one, you're probably going to have to prioritize your migration project to maybe start at the HMI level and include secure remote access for the HMI. So how does your supplier do that secure remote access? Do, do they do it themselves? Do they have a partner? Uh, what is the methodology that they use? Uh, and so forth. So these, these are all things that you need to evaluate on a supplier by supplier basis. Um, you know, it's not, it's, I wish we could answer that question in a podcast, but then, you know, we'd have to sit down for like an hour just to go over cybersecurity related selection criteria, you know, for HMI and, and SCADA and DCS. Uh, but that is something that you need to keep in mind. And one of the things that we find that we see a lot is that the users don't even have this kind of criteria when they're looking at new systems. So. Yeah, well, we, we've got an, our assignment, our homework for next time. And, and uh, But I think it's just talking about some of these things, you know, realizing that, all right, we do have a new challenge there. There's profound, unprecedented changes happening. But a, a lot of, you know, there's ways to respond using much easier to use tools than, uh, you know, than we used to have. And there, there is remedies and ways to get out of that, uh, the paralysis, even though we're going through uh some difficult situations here. I, I guess is that fair to say? Or? Yeah, I think it's fair. There's a lot we can do right now uh, to make things easier, uh, to make it easier for people to work remotely in a secure fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to plan ahead for when things are going to start up again. Um, and it's a good time to accelerate a digital transformation plan um, if you've been considering it, or you know, you're sort of in the early stages or whatever. Don't don't stop. Hey, hey, Craig, I was going to ask, you know, just I was trying to remember what we just talked about. And, of course, you know, sometimes I can't. But could we put in a nutshell kind of, you know, which industries are up and which are down? Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, right now, um, from the consumer products perspective, people are certainly still, I think, from a food and beverage perspective, the pharmaceutical perspective, I mean, these industries still have to continue to produce and and fill the supply chain. And, and as we were saying earlier, even if the method of acquiring the good is different, even if the if if it shifted, say, from food distribution, let's say, to the restaurant distribution, uh, to more of a either a direct food direct to the consumer distribution. But the thing is, is that the food, beverage, and pharmaceutical supply chain, uh, you know, has to continue to produce. So those industries, I would say, will, will, will be the least affected right now. Uh, but at the same time, they is still, because of the, because of, uh, stay-at-home work orders, these industries recognize the fact that how do they maintain the consumer demand, 
if they, in their in their particular geographies, don't necessarily have access to the plants. So right now, uh, we see from food, beverage, and pharmaceutical, these are those industries are going to, you know, again, remain healthy for the time being, uh, but recognize that, that to meet their customer requirements, uh, they are going to have to be uh, implementing a lot of these uh, digital transformation, you know, supply chain and remote access technologies. From the oil and gas perspective, um, at some point, the uh, you know the uh, with a low price, uh, and when people begin uh, begin driving again, you will begin to see the you know the prices begin to creep up. Uh, once we start you know get rid of a lot of this XX inventory, and again, if anything uh, politically can be done and to negotiate between Russia and Saudi Arabia and and you know and, and OPEC members to uh, see if they can uh, cut back on production and instead of flooding the world with supply, cutting back, which uh, so you can combine that with with um, greater consumer consumption, uh, you know, say in a quarter from now, uh, plus uh, less supply, so you'd start to bring that up. But one of the things that is going to happen in the oil and gas industry is, you know, because of the fact that the break-even line will even for, you know, traditional production, I'm not even talking shale, and, and certainly we're many, many dollars away from talking of things like oil sands, but you're going to be at a point where these companies recognize that they're going to have fewer workers in the field. They're going to have to be able to do more monitoring and control of production facilities, um, you know, with all, with yep. digital transformation. So we're really going to see that get accelerated because, you know, the new normal in oil and gas is they're just going to have to find ways to, uh, to again, be profitable, you know, at a lower price per barrel. And uh, digital transformation will be the way that, that, that helps them achieve that. And, and uh, Larry and I can certainly tell you that our oil and gas clients have, uh, have been very thirsty uh, for information at ARC because that's exactly what they're thinking right now uh, without getting into any you know, specific company names. But this is certainly something that they're all uh, very aggressive about. From the automotive industry, um, just saw the first, uh, beginning to start to see the match sales numbers. Uh, first company I saw was Hyundai announced a 43% decline in sales in March, um, compared to the March the year before. So, you know, you, you're probably figuring that the, the whole, that that's probably going to be reflective amongst all the suppliers for March. So the first quarter numbers will be certainly dented. But the second quarter numbers will probably be more reflective of, uh, of the, of the March numbers. Um, that is going to create a little bit of a pent-up demand uh, once uh, things start to hopefully normalize in the third and fourth quarter because cars that have not been replaced and then people begin driving again and need to replace those vehicles. The other thing that happens, uh, especially in, in, in the United States, is that when you do have low oil prices and low gasoline prices, you know, people begin to then shift back to the cars that they typically like to buy uh, which are SUVs, crossovers, uh, pickup trucks, cars that are a little bit more expensive uh, to operate based on the gasoline prices. So with low, lower gasoline prices, um, you're going to certainly have a, you know, sales are going to increase in the vehicles that the auto manufacturers from a profit margin perspective really like to sell. So, uh, you know, the Ford was far rather be selling F-150s and, and Explorers and GM would far rather be selling a lot of uh, Suburbans and Escalades and Silverados. 
because that's where they're going to make uh, make the most make the most money. So we do see maybe towards the end of the year, uh, you know, a bit of a resurgence uh, in the automotive industry, especially benefiting those uh, the, the lower the lower fuel prices from a pulp and paper industry. Um, you know, once they get over the surge of uh, of bath tissue and some of the other issues that are flying off the shelf. Uh, I think that the new normal is going to be is more. There's going to continue to be more growth in uh, in uh, cardboard and packaging board. I mean that's certainly been keeping uh, those companies going uh, very very strongly. You know certainly with the whole uh, ship at home and Amazon phenomenon, and that's only going to increase because I do think there's going to be a certain amount of the consumer that's going to say you know something. Uh, I uh, kind of like having some of these products uh, shipped to my home, even those that maybe uh, were not Amazon Prime members, uh, certainly before this uh, crisis, that, that are now have, have become and, and uh, may begin to, to, to shift. And that's going to certainly create a, a major shift for all the food and beverage and, pa- and pharmaceutical companies as well, uh, as more of those products get delivered directly to the home rather than just through the, the retail channels. So uh, I think from a chemical industry perspective, you know, we've certainly heard from some of our chemical clients that are, especially those that are making things like, that are now being enlisted to make products like hand sanitizer that hadn't in the past, but are also making a lot of cleaning solutions. And I think that this is going to create some new habits uh, by by people around the world as far as with hand washing and sanitizing and, and people that may not have done this, those things quite as a regular practice may begin to adopt that as regular practice. So we do think that on that end, uh, that's going to have a positive impact on the chemical companies that make that. And they, again, will also benefit from the uh, lower price uh, feedstock of the, you know, certainly with a lower price uh, barrel, you know, price per barrel of oil. Well, I mean, that's that's uh, an amazing uh, summary there, and thanks. Uh, so I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but, but Larry, I also want to put you on the spot. Is there any uh, items that uh, Craig might have missed or, or final thoughts? You know, my perspective is more from, from security, you know, from cybersecurity and remote operations and trying to deal with the situations that are happening in control rooms right now and, and how plants are operating and, you know, even for process plants um, that might be drawing down operations a little bit right now, um, you know, basically keeping staff safe and healthy to be able to keep the plants running in a safe manner uh, is of the utmost importance. So, you know, there's also some organizational aspects to this too, you know, in terms of how you want to handle staffing. If you want to have people on site, you know, on a, semi-permanent basis, you know, like that example I gave earlier uh, in power distribution where they're, they literally, you know, kind of have a cot in the control room kind of situation. But, you know, these, these are organizational issues that have to be addressed during this crisis too. Um, and also physical security, right? Controlling access uh, in and out of plants, um, maybe limiting, you know, some of the, uh, um, you know, ways that you've had to get in and out of plants before and maybe just narrow it down to one entry and exit or, or what have you. You know, these, these are all things that you need to consider if you're, you know, in a large plant environment and, you know, there's this epidemic going around and, and you obviously want to don't want, you don't want more people uh, to get sick. Okay. All right. Oh, and I was trying to think while you guys were talking, you mentioned the free licensing and I think we did have a couple of news items in our uh, April issue and probably online as well. Yeah, there's some cybersecurity suppliers, too, that are offering free licenses to some of their secure remote operations stuff out there. So it's a good time, actually, to start experimenting with some of this. You know, if you want to try some stuff out, it's a good time to get, you know, and this this is like free for six months kind of stuff, uh, or I think you said nine months, Craig, but 
it's not just 30 days free. It's it's much longer term than that. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, I I don't know. I don't, I don't know. You guys can mention names, but I, I I don't think I'm prevented. So the I think it was ABB and GE Digital were the two that we covered. But I know there's there's other ones as well. And uh, just another side note on our our just uh, going to the printer coverage. Um, you know, I wanted to highlight uh, something in news, uh, but you know, ARC's website and its subpage uh, impact of COVID-19 on industrial markets. Uh, you know, detailed your your efforts and your colleagues. Uh, to respond to the to the pandemic and there's like more than 20 online reports about it um, you know just all the topics we talked about um, so you can find that right on the the arc uh, the arcweb.com website i think the full address was arcweb.com slash impact hyphen covid19 hyphen industrial hyphen markets so that's just a shout out to the website there and because we don't want the podcast to take over too much. And uh, anyway, uh, listen, Larry and Craig, thanks for helping me and our listeners begin to get a handle on uh, how COVID-19 may shake out in the process automation control fields. You know, getting a sense of what's going on in uncertain situations can be really helpful. And, and I just thank you guys again for uh, uh, really accomplishing that today. Well, thank you. Thank you, thank Jim, you. and, uh, for everyone. and uh, be well and stay safe, everyone. Yes, All right. Every, and we wish that of everybody we come in contact with uh, virtually or in, in person. This has been a, another Control Amplified podcast. I'm Jim Montague. Thanks for listening. And as always, uh, remember that uh, Control Amplified podcasts are available on most podcasting apps, such as the iTunes Store and Google Play and on Control Magazine's YouTube channel uh, podcasts. Plus, you can just go to controlglobal.com and listen to them there as well. All right. Thanks a bunch, everybody.